The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Now, it's been uh, quite an eventful year, and um, because there seemed to be a, a something of a dearth of high-quality material to keep my attention last year, it's taken me a bit longer than usual to get the review of the year together. So I've had to mm. track down a lot of extra material to make up the numbers and get up to the, the 52 film minimum that um, I find makes a review of the year uh, reach critical mass. But even then, there are quite a few films that uh, you've seen that I either skipped or fell outside by two extreme lists. Uh, one of which is yeah. uh, uh, one of your top films, Shazam. Yeah, 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 which I'm genuinely surprised by because I assumed that that would have been one that you would have gone to see. Were you just bored of superhero films? I, I'm pretty much checked out of uh, DC for now. Um I enjoyed Wonder Woman. I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman 1984, but there's really nothing else that DC are doing or are planning on doing that holds any interest for me at all because they have done everything possible to drive me away. <laughs> so starting with yeah, I can uh, understand. Effe- starting with effectively an unknown superhero with uh, writers and a director on in whom I have little interest, th- there's nothing to get me in through the door. Mm. No, I can understand that. And I mean, certainly originally with Shazam, I thought this is just going to be awful because you look at the kind of the dark, gritty and adult approach of uh, the assorted films where Superman kills people and hits Batman and stuff. And you just imagine a kind of brightly coloured kids comic laid onto that. It would just be terrible. But of course, that's not what they did. So what was it about it that you liked? I think genuinely just because it went off and ploughed its own little furrow. It's a, it's a happy, uh, colourful little film. It's, ex- it's exactly what you would expect to film about a, a young kid who unexpectedly develops superpowers to be. Um, it leans into the silliness, um, although obviously there's, there's a point about 
maybe two thirds of the way through the film where it kind of has to settle down and you know it has to deal with all the plot it's been raising. But, uh, but no, I think genuinely it, it properly leaned into the concept. It didn't go down the route of trying to be so achingly adult and it, it worked as a result. Well, another film that uh, you mentioned here is uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. <laughs> yes, film of the year. Um, no, I, th- I had, that was one of those points where I went into the cinema and I stood at the back and the auditorium is just full of kids. And I really half expected a member of staff to come and kind of lay a hand on my shoulder and go, Sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave if you could avoid making a scene. But, again, a great, fun little film. Um, It's at its best when it's exploring this world that's got all these weird monsters in it. And it's at its most broad... There's, There's a whole bit about... Uh, again, about two-thirds of the way through, funnily enough, where they're kind of escaping from somewhere and there's landslides and, you know, big cracks opening in the landscape and stuff, and it could basically just be The Hobbit. And it's the points when it becomes more of a generic action film or generic, exciting film. Those are the dull bits, but the bits when it's just about what would it be like if everybody had weird monsters that they could make fight each other and bond with them yeah when it when it's doing that it's great um you also saw pet cemetery uh, <laughs> yes i didn't enjoy that one so much um i str- i'm struggling now to remember anything about it oh hang on it swaps over the how familiar are you with the book i've seen the previous film version Mm, the one with um, Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation, yes. And Fred Gwynn. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah, I'd forgotten about him being in it. The, um, so you remember that in the, fil- in the first film and in the book, it's obviously it's the younger kid that dies. Yes. In the remake, it's the, old, it's the older daughter that's killed. And... It's one of those changes that you don't necessarily think is going to make any difference, but it seems to unbalance the film. I just remember it not being terribly scary or interesting in the end. And there's lots of bits where I think at one point the wife looks out of the window and there's a bunch of kids sort of walking past wearing spooky masks, and it feels like too much of an attempt to fit the Stephen King story into what Hollywood producers imagine a horror film is supposed to be like these days. Oh. And uh, uh, it made very... Carry on. Sorry, all I was going to say was it made very little impression on me. In fact, I was looking down the list of films that I said I'd watched this year and it was that thing of going, I have seen that. What do I remember about it? And the answer is... Very little. Uh. And uh, the last one where you uh, overtook me was Crawl. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say the next one on my list. <laughs> I was quite uh, pleased with seeing that one. Well, no, we'll talk about that in a moment. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, again, Crawl, one of those films that doesn't quite live up to the premise. 
the the idea is that it's two people trapped in a house. There's a hurricane going on. The waters have risen, and the waters are full of alligators. I mean, what's what's not to like? But the longer the film goes on, the the more unlikely it gets because people are constantly being attacked by alligators and taking increasingly large amounts of damage to the point where I was just sitting there going, these these people should be dead because it just, weirdly, it starts to feel a bit unrealistic. Who'd have thought it? There's, uh, as you said, there's one film on the list that you expected me to uh, mention, mm. which is Colour Out of Space, which I saw a couple yes, of... I- I did see a couple of weeks ago, but it didn't go on general release until 2020. Anywhere in the world. Right. So, uh, I'm not counting that one this year, but I'll get back to you on it in <laughs> uh, a few months, maybe. I don't know. Yes, we'll just have to talk about this one in 2021. No, I, th- I, 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 I thought I'd fox you with seeing that one because I, I, I knew that it, it never seemed to make it into the cinemas. Um but evidently it now has done. <laughs> well, it made its way to Google Play, which is where I saw it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, I think it was given a brief theatrical release at the beginning of March, and it has now come to home video, and you can get it on DVD and Blu-ray as well. But um, I've been watching films rented digitally in the last few weeks to see a few more mm. recent films, um, like Vivarium, which is set to be the worst film of 2020. Uh, wow, that seems like quite a... And not just because it's about people trapped in a house they can't leave. Oh, is that the one where... Oh, it's a weird suburban landscape yes. and everything's the same and it's a satire on people living comfort... Yeah, I saw that. I just thought it looked rubbish. It, it <laughs> I is, saw the trailer. It it's, absol- thought... it's absolutely yeah. awful. It's, it's yeah. like a student is film it... made by a 12-year-old. <laughs> there's always you always get an element as well and and it's possible that as i get older i'm getting incre- increasingly kind of class conscious and left wing or something but there's a point when it's a bunch of it's a bunch of rich hollywood celebrities going oh look how awful your life is you live in houses like these and you think they're good that wasn't quite the um the tone that i got it was more the, uh, okay. the 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 teenage class rebel thinking of oh suburbia is like death oh and being like being, yeah, being, <laughs> yes. being being forced to being forced to live in like a nuclear family is terrible man and we can get mm. into this at great yeah. length uh, next year but it is absolutely awful <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a few films we both saw which uh, didn't make either of my lists um, and one of them is Godzilla King of the Monsters. Oh, that's, yes, I, that's the title, yes. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, never has the end of the world felt so inconsequential. Mm. It's, it's a... And I think... The, it, you, you get scenes of people in the bunker talking very seriously, and then some scenes of some giant monsters fighting each other in the sky, and then some more scenes of people in the bunker talking seriously, and then some more scenes of giant flying monsters... And the two never seem to connect to and each other. Di- so we're, we're being told, no, oh, you- oh, they, oh, they've destroyed Paris. Well, how about showing that rather than having someone else tell them that it's in hushed tones? Yeah, and yeah, you get the whole problem that you're sort of sitting in a cinema going, how is this boring? And the other big problem I had with, um, with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, was the whole character of the mum 
who's the kind of the instigator of the plot, where it gets to the end of the film and obviously they want to give her the traditional kind of redemptive character arc. So she kind of recants and and at that point you're meant to forgive her. But I think at that point something like four billion people have died. It's kind of too little too late. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned to me the other day that you'd seen It Chapter 2. Yes. Um, that's a very strange film. Is that one that you've seen? Yeah. Yeah, I just found it... I've, I, I don't think I've, I've seen a film where I've kind of uh, flipped between thinking this is rubbish, this is, quite, this is good. You know, almost at times within the same the same scene. It's just a very, very strange film. But gradually, again, and this is beginning to sound like a bit of a theme, but it, it gets less interesting as the film goes on. And certainly by the time you get to the big showdown at the end, where they're just running around and around in a cave and it's kind of coming after them with tentacles, and you, you get to a point where you think, I've, I've seen this about four times now. And... Yes, no, that that's uh, not not a great film, unfortunately. I found it strange how much of it was a retread of the first film, um, even though yes. even even though the the two films are based on a single book and two, and two parallel storylines hmm. from a single book. Chapter two, yeah, it has it has some more scare sequences. It has some more intergroup drama. Between the um, the the main characters, it's got Bill Skarsgård still doing you know, great work, I think, as Pennywise. I think he's great as Pennywise. Mm. Um, but there's no, there's nothing extra or that interesting. There's a subplot about one of them being um, a closeted gay man, which feels a yes. bit. You know, it feels fairly obviously like, oh yes, this was written in the eighties, wasn't it? Um, and I think that element is actually quite well written and well performed, even though it has a present day setting now. And it's Bill Hader hmm. as that character. I forgot. Yes. The character. Is it R- yeah. Richie. Bill Richie, I think. Yeah. Bill Hader's a um, a really good actor. I mean, he started out as a you know a comic actor in Saturday Night Live, but he's really establishing hmm. himself as a really great serious actor. And I thought he was very very good, but there's there's just not enough there really to justify this film's existence other than well there's loads of stuff in the book that we didn't use last time yes and it's it's i was under the impression that chapter one was going to be the kids in the 80s and chapter two was going to be the adults in the present day um but there's still and a lot I was of kind kids of surprised exactly to, to the point where it chapter two almost makes chapter one redundant i don't don't quite, and, and it's two. Is it two and three quarter hours or something? Yeah, it's it's very long for a horror movie. I think it's about two hours fifty. It's really yeah, really overlong. And and this is now me just. This is just a personal niggle. I try not to complain. To, having uh, having seen Watchmen, I now no longer try to be the guy that goes, "Oh well, they made too many changes when they turned it from a book into a film." But the end of the book features the destruction, the destruction of the town of Derry. And that's a fantastically written sequence. 
and it was a real disappointment to realise that they weren't going to put that on screen. That's a shame. I mean, it, uh, when you're changing mm. source material, if it's to the benefit of the way that you're telling the story, um, because, I mean, if it's a book, then you have to shrink it down to make it work on screen, um, or there's some other elements that mm. you've thought of that might improve it, like even a great Stephen King example, like one we've cited t- before, uh, the ending of the film version of The Mist was mm. um, the invention of Frank Darabont, the writer-director. And when he pitched it to Stephen King, King said, my God, I wish I thought of that. And he, and he, <laughs> and he prefers it yeah. to the... And I think it's the same with the ending of The Shawshank Redemption, the very end scene, um, mm. uh, was invented for the film. And King says, yes, that's, that's the ending I would have done if I'd thought of it. Yeah, um, but I mean, equally with... With it, chapter two, um, you've got obviously the book is set in the fifties and the eighties, and the film is set in the eighties and the the present day. It's obviously it's a bit of a shame that for presumably for budgetary reasons they couldn't do it as almost as a historical film. But the important thing is that there's one strand of the story where they're kids, and there's one strand of the story where they're adults, and changing the dates of those two strands doesn't you know that that's that doesn't affect the the actual storytelling, um, but there's just something about the fact that at the end of the book, you know, there's obviously meant to be the mirror that that Derry is the mirror or the creation of it, and so as it dies, Derry dies, and yeah, I, that was slightly disappointing to see that the film had sort of squandered all its ambition at that point. The idea that um, it has uh, threaded its tentacles through the town over such a long period of time mm. that it and the town are now inextricable. Exactly, yeah. That's a, see, that's an interesting idea and that's pl- completely wasted. Yeah, and plus, as I, as I say, it's um, it's just such a well-written sequence. But I suppose you, there's also the case for arguing that in the film, the town isn't established as a place... It, it's, it could be set anywhere, basically. The film could be set anywhere. The town isn't established in its own right, I guess. So the film doesn't need it, but knowing it was in the book was 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 definitely something that I thought was a disappointment not to see. Mm. It's um, funny because it, it's one of several disappointing Stephen King films over the last year. Uh, we had... Uh, in the Tall Grass, which went to Netflix, which was a very overlong story about people getting lost in a in a field. And I the, don't think I've come across that one. It was directed by Vincenzo Natale, uh, the director of Cube, huh. um, and it didn't work at all. And hmm. what, one of the many films that were vying for the five slots in my worst one of the year list was Doctor Sleep um, the sequel to The Shining yes. <laughs> which is a terrible film um, completely misunderstands why The Shining works and mm. tries to be a sequel to both the book and the film which listener if you're not aware of they're very very different um, mm. in, in, in tone and story and particularly in ending um, but um, the director, Mike Flanagan, is such a King fanboy that he doesn't seem to have any sense of discipline over storytelling. So you get a load of rubbish mm. about vampires who feed on other, on other people's shining ability. 
played by yeah. uh, with, led by a woman called Rose the Hat, whose gimmick is that she wears a hat, which you think is going to be in some yes. way relevant, but it isn't. It's just a, a boring affectation. And the film, again, is nearly, <laughs> is nearly three hours long, and there's a director's cut that is over three hours long. It's um, a very odd... I, I've, seen, I've read the book, not seen the film. The book itself is very, very odd, because I remember picking it up not long after it came out, and it ambles along nicely enough. But I think I was about 100 pages in, and I was just wondering when the story was going to start. Yeah, it's the same in the film. There's about half an hour at the beginning yeah. could be removed entirely, and the film could be comfortably under two hours, and you'd lose nothing. Yeah. Is there, just out of interest, is there a sequence in the film where the kind of psychic vampires go to New Jersey on September the 11th? No, I think a lack of discipline is one thing, but a total lack of sensitivity and taste is another. I think that's yeah. that's gone. Well, it's, what, it's interesting. Reason. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's in the there's there's obviously a, because the idea is that they feed off people's psychic energy and distress and despair and things. So yes, they in the book they go to New Jersey in the course of September the 11th, and in print. That feels that still feels weirdly quite daring and quite taboo, but maybe it would have just looked crass on screen. Yeah, I suppose it's the, the the difference between media because if it's just the pictures in your mind, then you're able to self censor, mm-hmm. but it's harder when the pictures are being presented yeah. to you. Well, speaking of tragedies, the uh, the other film that you and I have both seen, which isn't on the list, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, really? Yeah. You're not a fan, then? No, oh, dear. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not keen on Quentin Tarantino. Um, I think he's a creep, and that his work hmm. is generally very overrated. He doesn't make films about anything other than films. They have no real depth other than, hey, look at this film I saw. Isn't it great? The only film of his that I really liked was Inglorious Bastards because it felt like it was a a reflexive uh, examination of war stories and the way it manipulates the truth of uh, the Second World War and warps it so completely that Hitler is assassinated in 1944. Made me think mm. of how stories or, or the history of the Second World War is warped into... Uh, different shapes and stories to tell entertaining adventures of daring do. Um, he tries the same thing yeah. in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but instead of being about the death of Hitler, it's about the death of Sharon Tate, which felt to me totally different in context and in extremely poor taste. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. You haven't actually said anything that I disagree with. And I... I remember I, I came out of the cinema and I. This was one of these films I agonised over for days because I didn't. I didn't understand, and I still don't think I do. I don't understand what the film was for. Um, it's you know they've. It feels at times like they've built this incredible um, reconstruction of Hollywood in 1969, but it's just that they've done it because Quentin Tarantino wants to and it's but I really liked it I think I think the thing that I came away from more than anything was and I think this is something that other people have talked about in reviews it's not 
it doesn't feel like a film that you watch. It feels almost weirdly more like a place you visit. Um, and what I really liked about it was the sense of place and the fact that, you know, Los Angeles 1969 genuinely felt very, very real and felt lived in. But I couldn't tell you what Quentin Tarantino's plan was with the film or what he thought people were going to take away from it. It's, yeah, I, I, it really just kind of bugged me for several days afterwards because I, I just kept returning to this thing, but what, what's, this, what's this for? He's always been a fetishist for nostalgia. Hmm. Here it just feels like he's been given total carte blanche to do whatever he wants. So he's, as you say, he's just built Hollywood from the ground up from his favourite period and had his little toys walk around inside it and acting out their little dramas. And I, I found none of the characters particularly interesting. I found their stories unengaging. And towards the end where it it turns into a recreation of the Manson murders but with a twist that they get killed with flamethrowers and things like that Mm. it felt like the lowest kind of exploitation I mean yes complaining that a Quentin Tarantino film is tasteless is a bit like criticising a dog for barking I guess but I had some real problems with the end sequence because it just I don't know it, it felt it did feel weirdly like it was pushing into inappropriate. Chunks of the film as well seem like they're, they're more set up like a, a, a kind of a code, for it's a, a puzzle for people to decode. The one thing that sticks in my memory at one point is that a bus, I think, goes past with an advert for a TV series called Combat on it. And the one thing I know about Combat, which I suspect Quentin Tarantino does as well, is that that's the film that that's the series that starred Vic Morrow, who of course is the actor that many years later was killed in the accident on the Twilight Zone set. And I don't know, is that significant? Am I reading too much into it? I've no idea. I think I think you're you're looking for depth in a puddle. Hmm. All you're seeing is a reflection of the sky. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Is I, I think that I'm, in the absence of any substance, I'm almost trying to find my own meaning in it. Yeah, mm. it's 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 a story. But I but great. Uh, but as a place, fantastic. And and in terms of just sitting there in the cinema, and watching late sixties Los Angeles watch over me, I thought that was phenomenal. It was just everything else. It's a, it's a film about set and costume design and not actually script and acting. Yeah. I found it bizarre that it had so many acting Oscar nominations and that Brad Pitt should win an Oscar for this film, I found absurd. He's a very fine actor who's done great work in other films. He should have been nominated for um, the assassination of Jesse James, at the very least. Hmm. But the idea that he won an award for this, where he's really just coasting playing a very poorly defined character who doesn't really do very much I found it it makes the Oscars look even more worthless than they already are Hmm. yes but that's always the problem with the Oscars isn't it people never win for the stuff that they should have done they win for the films two or three later down the line when everyone remembers that they haven't got an Oscar yet Hmm. it felt weird that it should be that in this year where you know 
more like a lifetime achievement award for a movie star, and then at the same time they're giving best picture and best director to a social drama from South Korea. Yes. Um, yeah. No, it's which it, which it must make sense to which somebody. according to your list you didn't see and is not in my top ten. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I thought Parasite. I, 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 was, I thought Parasite was fine. Um, it didn't say anything wildly groundbreaking, but it's quite well made and well acted. Mm. Um, and given that it's the first foreign language film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, it it has its place in history. But it's not yeah. a it's not a masterpiece. It's not even Bong Joon Ho's best film. Mm. And it's not even his best film out of his last two. But again, that's the that's the, the, the was it, am I right? Twenty nineteen seems so long ago. Was uh, there was some vague? Was this the year when there was some vague criticism of the various films that had got nominated? Or am I mixing it up with the previous year? It might have been the previous year when uh, Green Book won Best yeah. Picture for being about a, a, oh. white, a white man who learns not to be racist. Yes, yeah, no, that that uh, that that might be more what I'm thinking of. But uh, onto the onto the list of quality at number ten, a film we've both seen, Us. Oh yes. Or, uh, what thoughts do you I... have? I, I again, and this is. I, I wish I could find. I wish I could sound more enthusiastic about a lot of the films I saw this week. But but so many of them were mixed bags. I thought this started off phenomenally, and the more that gets revealed, and the more that gets revealed. It, again, it just felt that it became uh, less and less interesting. I thought that um, Get Out was a fantastic film, and I kind of went into us hoping that this would be in a similar vein but I think I don't know at some point the film just lost me and I'm not even sure I could particularly tell you why I liked it quite a bit but I, yeah I have to share your reservations that it was a lot easier to compile the bottom five than it was the top ten um, mm. it, it's, it's been quite a weak year I I thought Us had some brilliant uh, set pieces. I thought it was really suspenseful. It looked mm. fantastic. Um, and it has some really fantastic performances in them. The problem was, though, that it feels unfocused. It's as though yeah. Pe Peels had a really good idea for a story, but he hasn't fully thought through what he wants to say with the story. So the idea of these, yes. these 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 murderous doppelgangers coming out of some underground base somewhere to take over your life, that's a great concept. Mm. But he he makes the mistake of trying to explain it too much, and the problem with that is that it makes absolutely no sense in any way. Yeah. What was the... It was some secret government project, and I can't even remember... It what was, the project it was, was meant to it solve. To, it was to control people through their their underground doppelgangers. But it's again it's left vague and say, Oh yeah, they, they 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 shut it down and they just left them here. And it's it's not it, they they either explain things too much or not enough. Um mm. a lack of explanation completely would have worked I think a lot better and just been 
much more frightening because it would have been the unknown. Yeah. But and the, the, yes. lack, the, uh, lack, because... the lack of focus in the storytelling means a lack of focus in what you're trying to say. Is it about the dark side of America reaching up and destroying itself? Is it about you know the underclass rising against the mm. the, the privileged? Like uh, Get Out, is it is it principally about race? But there are white members of this underclass as well, and the the family's best friends down the street are white, played by. Uh, mm. Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker. So it's not necessarily entirely about that. It it, it has a lack of focus. And when I yeah. and when I'm talking about this film, you know, complaining, oh, lack of focus, da da da. And it's the tenth best film of the year. Hmm. I mean, slim pickings. Yes. <laughs> well, given that, given that my best film of the year was apparently either going to be Detective Pikachu or. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, you've probably got nothing to complain about. <laughs> oh, so those 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 were your two top choices. I I genuinely for for various different reasons I I, I enjoyed both of them. Yes, but when you look down the list of films I've you know I've seen, it's perhaps not a surprise that they floated to the top. <laughs> well, I would uh, award best actress for the year to Lupita Nyong'o in Us because I think she's very very good. Mm. in uh, the dual yeah. role um, and it, it is a brilliantly acted film it does look fantastic and it has some great sequences but you can't make the mistake of thinking about it in any detail at all no in fact funnily enough I've now literally just in the course of this conversation remembered the great thing about going to see this film was that it was obviously pulling in a slightly different audience uh, to what you might, you know, to, to to a lot of the other films, and so I went in and I was sitting behind a middle-aged uh, African Caribbean lady who obviously hadn't been to see a great many kind of more horror-tinged films, and it was great watching her react to the film. That more than more than the film itself, that was the best thing for me was to see somebody that perhaps wasn't so familiar with horror films really getting into it and genuinely sort of being taken aback at times was lovely. Well, that's good. I mean, that's that's yeah. a, a nice upshot that it's... Uh, that having someone like Jordan Peele who's telling more socially conscious and socially aware stories mm. about serious issues but doing so through the filter of genre is bringing people to horror pictures who wouldn't necessarily go to see them. Um, yeah. So that's a nice upside. Um Number five in the bottom five of the year, um, I'm going to have to say is Dark Phoenix. <laughs> yes, I can't say um, I, I agree. Yep, I think I agree with that. Um, to begin with, the, the purely cosmetic title annoyed me. It was released in the UK uh, as X-Men Dark Phoenix, but they didn't bother with that in the US. So I really didn't understand what was going uh. on there. Um, but, like I said in my review, it, it feels like the cast and crew are just working their notice. They know that yeah. the X-Men series is is pretty much over because the rights have now transferred to Disney and the X-Men will be rebooted within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we've already had the series as a whole come to a, a very satisfactory conclusion with Logan. But nevertheless, mm. they're cranking out the handle and churning out another one. A 
rehash of elements of uh, X-Men The Last Stand to, to do the, the, the Dark Phoenix saga storyline from the comics, one of the apparently the great X-Men storyline from the comics. This is, their, yeah. this is at least their second crack at it. I watched X-Men The Last Stand again recently, and it's not very good, but it's okay. Um, That's the one with Vinnie Jones in, isn't it? Yeah, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. That one. Um, that may actually be the worst performance ever put to celluloid. <laughs> but the problem is that it's just it's so sloppy. There's very weak writing. There's characters mm. badly shoehorned in. Um, even at the end of the last film, Apocalypse, we had the villain being defeated by Jean Grey's Phoenix powers, which she doesn't even gain until this movie. Um, mm. And it's largely anchored around some extremely weak acting. Um, Sophie Turner is not a very good actor and completely mm. fails to sell Jean Grey's turmoil. Jennifer Lawrence uh, is completely checked out and is barely making an effort. And I think, you know, by, by this point, it's not unreasonable to spoil films. She gets killed about a third of the way in, in a way that has almost no yeah. impact emotionally. And Jessica Chastain plays but the villain, the, and is also completely just mouthing the lines, standing on her marks, totally disinterested. It's the mm. the entire film is just contractual obligation. Oh, we've got to make another one. I've got to churn these out. Well, let's have another go at doing this story, but let's do it in the most boring, perfunctory, lazy way possible. Yeah. But at the same time as well, the, the tone of the film is very strange as well. It's all, it, right from the word go, it's desperately sombre, as if it's, uh, you know, the, in the sort of the storytelling thing of the 20 minutes before the end when the characters are at their lowest ebb, the whole film is like that. And it's, it's very, very odd. Particularly since it starts with the X-Men supposedly at their height, where you know, they're like International Rescue yeah. being called in by the President to save the space shuttle. And mm. it should it should start with triumph and then slide slowly into disaster, but there's no tonal variation. Um, no. It's the first film directed by Simon Kinberg, who's been a staff writer on the X-Men movies for many years. And... It just looks like, yeah, let's just let's get the T boy to do this one. Hmm. It's it's really sloppy and lazy. Uh number nine on the good list, one that I was very surprised uh and delighted by. Child's play. Oh, the uh remake. Yes. Huh. It was so much more than I expected. I was predicting that it was going to be you know, stupid horror rubbish and entirely disposable. Mm. What I got is a very witty, surprisingly complex film that manages to mesh varying tones and genres. It works as a comedy, it works as a thriller, it works as a gory horror, it works as uh, intelligent satire. The the basic premise is retained from the original film that there's a, a killer child's doll, but rather mm. than being possessed by the spirit of a serial killer, as in the original films, this time it's a 
uh, robotic doll that at the factory had all the safeguards switched off by a disgruntled uh, uh, line worker who then committed suicide. So it's right. so basically it's 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 forgotten that it's not supposed to kill people. Uh, but it also has the ability. So it, to, is, but... it has the ability to interface with all the electronic equipment in your home. So uh, it can okay. it can turn your fridge against you. It can uh, order fifty pizzas and charge it against your credit card. That kind of thing. Ah. Yeah, because but the, certainly when you know the latest in the long line of his another film franchise from the eighties you really liked, and we yeah I don't think the Omen certainly weren't good, but I'm I'm glad to hear it it turned out really well. It's genuinely really funny, um, hmm. and some of the the violence and the gore is great fun. There's one character gets his head run over by a lawn tiller. Which um, completely rips all the skin off his face, but also tears off his his hair, which flies through the air and lands on a garden gnome. <laughs> um, but there are there are ideas about the friendship between the young boy and his his doll. The idea of this toxic friendship that the doll's trying to exclude anyone else from the boy's life, so that he'll only play with him. So this very toxic relationship oh. between the two. The way that people have become over reliant on technology, where Chucky's even able to reprogram uh, someone's Uber so it drives into a wall and kills them. Hmm. It it's adding in all these extra ideas on top of this killer doll story, and yet it all yeah. it all somehow works. All these varying tones, you know, there's bits where someone dressed as a big doll with a big fake head on gets stabbed in the neck and there's blood sloshing all around and pouring into children's faces um, <laughs> it sounds brilliantly vile it's great um, I was I was I read back and it had surprisingly good reviews the people saying oh we were expecting it to be terrible but it's actually pretty good mm. and it's it's really enjoyable and it's surprisingly smart um, it was a it was a real delight and a real pleasure um Hmm. Aubrey Plaza from Parks and Recreation plays the boy's mum, and the voice of Chucky is Mark Hamill. Okay. Um, who, of course, is a, a now a highly regarded voice actor. Yeah. Um, he is for many the definitive version of the Joker, for the animated hmm. versions of Batman, um, and he's excellent as as Chucky. He he captures just the right balance between endearing and sinister. Right, number eight on the list is another one that we've both seen. Dolomite is my name. Yes, I mean I enjoyed it, but I don't think I don't think I've ever kind of felt vaguely excluded by a film before. But uh, I definitely had this slightly weird thing of of this moment of going, no, the the stuff this film is talking about is not not for you. Um, there's that whole sequence where they go, he goes to the comedy club when he's first worked out his Dolomite character. And he's just reeling off these lines, and the audience is shrieking with laughter. And I'm sitting there going, "I don't, I don't get it." <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, it's it's the story of Rudy Ray Moore, who uh, was a club comic in the early '60s, and pivoted away from doing more mainstream material into outright raunchy material that was mm. definitely aimed towards a, an almost exclusively black audience. And seeing that there was 
very little in the film market uh, aimed at the kind of people who came to see him in clubs. He made his own movie um, about a uh, kind of kung fu cop secret agent uh, taking down the evil white man um, filled with terrible action and and bad acting, but made with tremendous enthusiasm, and the resulting film becoming a surprise smash hit and yielding sequels and a and a long career. Um, it's from the same writers as Ed Wood, mm. uh, and so it does feel Which very similar. Yes, yeah, it hits a lot of the same kind of storytelling processes and things doesn't it yeah and i think that was what initially attracted me to it was kind of you know that that thing going you know that film you really like well here's another one and yes it's 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 great it's it's really really good and i was as i say i just had that slight slightly odd moment at times of thinking ah i'm used to having all culture explicitly made for the purposes of me watching it and suddenly here's one that you know is about this whole other genre that was never designed for me and the, that's that's a slightly and weird and the film does address this there's a as a there's a scene mm. where rudy and his friend go and see you know the, oh what's the what's the big new comedy that's out at the moment what what is it that people will have to go and see and they go and see uh the front page with jack lemon and oh, Walter Matthau. that's right yeah and they're the only two black guys in the cinema, and the white audience is howling with laughter at this movie, and they're just sitting there yeah. in baffled silence, wondering what it is that people find so entertaining, because there's this total separation, almost, of popular culture. Mm. So I felt that was quite helpful for me, as a guy who's very white, um, mm. to, sit, right, to see it from the other side. Right, this is how people feel when they're watching stuff that I get. So yeah. it's easier for me to see things from their point of view. And the fact that there were so yes. many... Again, there, there were white people involved in the making of the movies. Like, there were a bunch of film students that more roped in because they knew how the yes. cameras worked and that kind of thing. Yes, um, they, they knew where to get film, that sort of thing, yes. Yeah, and uh, more is happy to accommodate them and happy to, to work with them because... He appreciates their professionalism and, and their knowledge. Mm. Um, I thought Eddie Murphy as Moore was fantastic, and he really should have been Oscar nominated. It's a great performance. Yes, um, he gets he gets to do the the larger than life comedy shtick, but he also does a lot of quieter, more dramatic material. You get to see much more of his inner life and his background and why his life experience has shaped him towards the way he is. Mm. Um, and it's a it's a terrific character portrait, more so I'd say than Ed Wood, which is more of an ensemble piece with Wood at yes. the centre. This is much more about Moore himself um, and his story. But uh, I I found it very interesting to be on the outside looking in and to sort of have yeah to have to have this explained to me in a way that was quite accessible. Yeah, uh, I I could I could understand why he was a success, even if I don't appreciate the material itself. And um, yeah. I think that was what made it work so well. And the fact that it, I mean the movie has two white writers as well, uh, I believe. So 
I might, yes, to, yeah. I might, I might have to double check that. But um, no, I think you're right. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was a, a very fine piece of work, very enjoyable, sir. Mm. Uh, number four on the bottom list, I think it's going to have to be Terminator Dark Fate. Yes. Now, which one is this? Is this the one where Skynet sends a robot back in time to kill John Connor? Uh, no. Oh. Uh, <laughs> wow. They... It starts with a flashback to the events after Terminator 2, where John and Sarah are in Mexico, and then suddenly a Terminator comes up and walks out of the sea and shoots John in the face. Okay. That's um, unexpected, I guess. And um, then we jump forward to the present day. And uh, did you like all the previous Terminator films? Well, here they are again. <laughs> did you did you uh... like that bit from that other film? Well, here it is again. Did you like the bit with the liquid Terminator? Well, here's another one. Did you like the bit where Sarah had to go through a, a, a story arc in Terminator 2 about learning to trust... Um, a machine that it might not necessarily be a monster murderer. Well, here it is again. Um, it's like it, that line in The Simpsons, isn't it, where they're entertaining the old folks and they go, look who it is, it's all your favourite childhood pets. Yeah, <laughs> it's just... Yeah, it's, it's just bits of previous Terminator films. People had a go at Terminator Genesis when it came out. But that was really trying to do something I, different. It was trying That's to... the one with the operating system, isn't it? Yeah. And twisting the, I mean, this is the, the mythology around. Hmm. Um, of, of, of putting Kyle Reese on the back foot and Sarah's the more dominant one because, the, ter- yeah. because the, the, the Terminator's gone back and killed her parents and then she's been raised by another Terminator. And hmm. ter- you know, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines has that great ending rather than you know, ha- yes. you know, happy ever after. Even Terminator Salvation tried to do something different with the series by setting it entirely in the future war and making it a future war story. Dark yeah. Fate is just all the bits of previous Terminator films that they think worked, focus grouped hmm. into one amorphous blob of greatest but hits. The... Yeah. And it's less than the sum of its parts by a huge margin. It's an embarrassment. And the fact that it's the one that James Cameron came back for, this is the one that has his stamp of approval on as, as the real third Terminator. No, this, this, is, this one he actually worked on. He didn't just give it... Oh, you know, wow. He didn't just rubber stamp it. It's got his name on it. Oh, dear. Um, this is the one he, he wanted. It's, it's really pathetic. Um it's got very boring characters. You know, the new characters added in the new savior of humanity is a um, young Mexican woman who's not really given any personality. Sarah's got the same story arc as she did before, and Linda Hamilton's really sleepwalking her way through the movie. I mean, this hmm. really—I mean, this could have been a, a big comeback for her, having you know, slipped yeah. out of the limelight some time ago. This could be a, a big revival of her career, but she just throws it all away. But there's not even anything for her to do. She's just got the same material, just mm. churning it out over again. The new Terminator is very bland and uninteresting, and the actor who plays him has very little charisma or presence. Uh, the mm. idea—he's a Terminator who can split in two. He's got like a, a uh, an, an a nanofiber 
outer covering that can go off and turn into a liquid terminator. And it's got a solid inner bit so it can run around. So so there's that. But again, it's not even that interesting or... You know, he, he could work as a team of two, but it's never really made interesting. And the whole thing is just... No, it's, but... it's, a, it's a desperate cash grab. And the franchise now is... is ab- It is absolutely, definitely dead. It's come back from the... from. <laughs> it's come back from the dead more times than Arnold you... Schwarzenegger has in the movies. But this time it must actually be dead because you, there is no you further say appetite that now, for but... it. My, my, I'll bet you that if Skynet can just send back one more robot to kill John Connor... Then maybe this time it'll all be different. Well, given that Dark Fate was a bomb, I really don't think it's likely. It made less yeah, money that's than true. it made less money than Genesis in the US, and Genesis was noticeably cheaper. Um, yeah, I I prefer to think of Genesis as being the third Terminator movie because at least that has a nice happy ending. Hmm. It it's the only Terminator movie that ends with Arnold Schwarzenegger still alive. I suppose, yes, that's true. Number seven on the list. Um, This is quite an obscure one. At Eternity's Gate. No, that one's definitely passed me by. Uh, It's co-written and directed by Julian Schnabel, and it's a portrait of Vincent van Gogh in in his final weeks, played by Willem Dafoe. And... What struck me about it is it's a film made by a painter. Schnabel is himself a painter. So he is trying to uh, tell Van Gogh's story using a painterly Mm. eye. The film is, uh, I I think, shot digitally, very handheld, but he captures the, the surroundings and the landscapes with the same kind of eye and luster and colour that Van Gogh did in his own work. Okay. And, the, and the film has a focus on showing you the world the way Van Gogh saw it. Um, yeah. not, not just in, the, in, the, in the, that kind of photography, but in the use of lenses, in the, the camera movement, a lot of it looming close into Van Gogh's face. He often is talking straight into the camera, which is slightly above him, because he has this feeling of pressure from the world, forcing itself mm. down on him. Um, and it's it's a very beautiful film. I thought uh, Defoe was absolutely fantastic. He was Oscar nominated, I think, two years ago now, because it had a very staggered release. Okay. Um, even though oh, he's, right. even though he's twenty five years older than Van Gogh was when he died. Um, but it's it's a really really brilliant piece of work um, in trying to communicate the way Van Gogh perceived his surroundings. Um, the title itself is, and I assumed because it's about the, the lead-up to Van Gogh's death, that At Eternity's mm. Gate was referring to death. It isn't, yeah. as dialogue makes clear, and I think it's lifted directly from some of Van Gogh's writings. He perceived God and nature to be interchangeable and to stand and look out over nature itself, over vast landscapes of beauty, to him, that was to stand at eternity's gate, to um, revel in the the glory of nature, the glory of God, as he mm. saw it. Uh, I thought it was a really 
brilliant film, beautifully yeah. acted. Um, I, the, it, it speculates on a different manner in which Van Gogh died, not in a, a, a Tarantino way, but here he, he yeah, dies. Yeah. He, he dies the same way. He dies of being shot in the side, but the circumstances under which the shot was fired are different. It's, rather than suicide, it's an accident for which he takes the blame to avoid um, uh, someone else's life being ruined. Okay. Um, for which apparently there is some theoretical support, yeah. but um, it 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 pushes further the notion of Van Gogh as this poor suffering soul in a way that yeah. the the filmmaker decided that his suicide would not. But it's it's a brilliant mm. piece of work. I I'd recommend it very highly, and it's a pity that so few people seem to have seen it. It's certainly not. I don't even recall hearing the title. Um, and do you say it's, it's been sort of been sat on for a couple of years, effectively? It it trickled out very slowly. I think it came out quite late in the American um, release calendar, and then it yeah. was held over in the UK until I think spring of last year, um, when there seemed to have been no effort at all to capitalise on the fact that it had an Oscar nomination for best actor. Um, but no, well, why would you very... do something like that? Well, yeah, I thought that was weird. I mean, it's not as if the film is even tremendously challenging. It's 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 not like the, the film from a few years earlier, Loving Vincent, which was an animated film mm. comprised entirely of oil paintings. I mean, that was incredibly ambitious. But this yeah. is this is more akin to a straight drama. Um, and it's it's not something that is. Intensely challenging. There's no reason why, with a, with a decent publicity campaign, this couldn't have been a moderate success. Yeah. Number six uh, is a film that was both a big commercial success and critically highly acclaimed, uh, but which you still didn't bother going to see. It's 1917. Oh yes, yeah. <sighs> I don't know why it was. It was one of those occasions when. The it just didn't didn't capture my interest, uh, and but I'll be honest with you, I couldn't really tell you why. It was just one of those ones I kind of looked at and went, I have to get on a bus to go and see it. You know, it just seems too much effort. <laughs> I take it that was the wrong decision. Uh, I would say so. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it a great deal, but. Um, it's it's again it's a film of kind of two halves. It is amazingly well made. The, mm. the the story is that two corporals in the trenches of World War One are to transport a message uh, ahead of the line up to a battalion that's about to launch an attack on the German lines, um, who are unaware that it is in fact a trap and that they will be massacred. They can't send a message by well. telephone because the wires have been cut by the retreating German army, so they have to travel on foot. And the entire film is portrayed as being a single, uninterrupted take. There is a blackout mm. about halfway through to allow passage of time. But apart from that, it is portrayed as being two continuous passages of time of about an hour each. Um, and with long takes stitched together almost invisibly. I mean, you can, you can spot at a few times where, like, the camera going behind a pillar or briefly into darkness... But a lot of the time you think, how how much longer is this take going to last? On a technical hmm. level, it's almost flawless. Um, there are some issues with sound mixing in a couple of places where trucks seem to just suddenly disappear. 
when uh, the, the sound fades away. But it's oh, it's okay. a it's a brilliantly directed piece of work, and a very very intense, thrilling story about these two young men who could be who could just drop dead in their tracks at any moment. Um, the horror of the war is not in any way downplayed. There's a moment where they're hiding in a, mm. a, uh, a shell crater and one of them recoils at, at the sight of a rat, reaches behind him to steady himself and puts his hands straight through the uh, chest of a rotting corpse. It is, it is not in any way downplayed. Yeah. Um, and I was pleased to see that a film this unapologetic and this brutal was... A surprising commercial success. My mm. issue, though, is that for all its technical brilliance and for all its uh, engaging thrills and empathy, it doesn't really have much to say other than this was bad, this was a mm. terrible thing, you know, young men throwing away their lives for this. And just because this attack's being called off doesn't mean they won't order another one in a few days and, and, yeah. and all these people will die then anyway. Um, these are all good and valid points, but they're not anything that people haven't been saying for uh, you know at least as long as I've been alive. Yeah, there is also yes. A... Well, there's. I mean, uh, uh... no. Carry on. Sorry. Sorry. I, all I was going to say was, I, I guess as well. That's that's presumably partly as well where the title comes from. Is nine, calling it nine, very deliberately calling it nineteen seventeen. You know, to make it clear that the this war still got another year to run um it puts me in mind that there's a there's one very very good dark joke at, in the last episode of blackout of four i think where they were about to go over the top and they think the attack's been called off and i think it's captain darling goes thank god for that the great war 1914 to 1917 and it's just a horrible moment because obviously of course the audience knows stuff that the characters don't hmm it all, I think using a title like that also is an indication of this is what life was like. There is no, there mm. is no like 1984. There is no escape from this environment. Yeah. Um, you you have to you survive as long as you can, and maybe you'll live to see the end of the war, and maybe you won't. But yeah. at the end of the story, the surviving characters have made it to the end of that day, and that is as much of a victory as they can hope for. So the uh, next film in the bottom five, hmm. we're na- now we're getting to the ones that really hurt. <laughs> um, this is a film that I, I didn't want to see. I made myself watch, and I suffered through it purely so that I could purely so that I could study it, like the way that. You know, we study microbes that swirl in a drop of water. It's the I'm hus- intrigued now. It's the hustle. <laughs> I don't even recognise the. T- I don't even recognise the title. <laughs> Getting a bit Geordie. Was it? Was it? Was it a big film or? <laughs> it, it was. It was a moderate scale film. It was. Right. The, it was the remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Starring Anne Hathaway oh. and Rebel Wilson. Right. Okay, now suddenly you, your reasons for going to see it start to make a little more sense, yes. Oh, I didn't go and see this in the cinema. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
even my you know, my self hatred doesn't plumb such yeah. depths. Um, now, if, if have you seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? I haven't, but I'm aware oh. it has a reputation as a. Yeah, I know. I, I, I couldn't really. Again, a lot of the times that people go, "You must have seen such and such," and I say, "No, I don't." Often have a good reason for not having seen it, but no, I'm aware that Dirty Rotten Scoundrels has. Uh, it generally is a very well regarded film that, that people are very fond of um, I assume that there's good reasons for this film not to trade on the title well the idea was that this was going to be a um, gender flipped version mm. um, with uh, female con artists uh, fleecing men for all their worth you know the kind of mm. uh, nasty macho figures that um that it's engender such hatred but the working title was nasty women after the comment about uh hillary clinton so this was going to be very much a right you know, current wave feminist film the problem with yeah. that though and i i can't i can't explain this without spoiling the ending of the original film i'm afraid is that in, okay, the, no. in, in the original film um Michael Caine and Steve Martin play con men in a French Riviera resort who compete mm. against each other to be the first to fleece a an American heiress. Uh, so you can see there's a kind of there is a gender imbalance there. But the twist at the end yeah. is that the American heiress is actually a legendary con artist herself, and she winds up fleecing yeah. them for all their worth before recruiting them into her team for her next big scam. So it ends with them quite happily working for a woman as part of her scheme. So it has a, yeah. a feminist twist on the story. Hmm. They don't seem to have watched the entire movie while writing The Hustle because you have um, women who are ultimately fleeced by a man in what is supposed to be a feminist story, uh, an overtly feminist story. At the same time... Really? Yeah. At the same time, they reuse a lot of the script to the extent that the original writers are credited as co-writers on this film, and a lot of the jokes mm-hmm. are the same. Rebel Wilson still cannot deliver a joke with any <laughs> timing at all. She's, in a, she's one of the worst actresses working in major pictures at the moment. She's absolutely terrible. Yeah. Anne Hathaway's performance is so mannered and so false that it it looks like it's deliberate, and I think it is, but it's like it's trying mm. to add extra layers of subtlety to something that has yeah. no subtlety. It, yes, well, it sounds again. It is something I've complained about before. When when you're you're watching films, the female character will 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 often turn out to be clumsy, and there'll be endless shots of her falling over because nobody's really been able to think of anything to do. So the actress, presumably at some point in desperation, has gone, will it be funny if I fall over here? And everyone's just gone, yeah, yeah, do it. Well, that's the entirety of Rebel Wilson's career, that her, her, comedy, <laughs> her, com- her comedy shtick is that she's fat and falls over a lot. And, and she's coarse. Right. And she doesn't really have any oh, other dear. talent or ability beyond that. I have no idea why people think that she's some kind of star. She's not. She's terrible. It's utterly, so, but, utterly but just, charmless and utterly unengaging and uninteresting. 
But just to be clear, because I, I, I want to make sure I haven't misunderstood an important point here. So the original film ends with the twist being that the, the woman was right and they go off and work for the female con, uh, the, the female con artist. The explicitly feminist remake of the film has the women lose to a man. And go off to work for him. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm just baffled. Did they, do, you, do you suppose they, they... Did their copy of the film stop halfway through? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, just... It's, it's just so bizarre. I, I can't understand why it is anyone thought this through. I don't think anyone ever thought this through. It yeah. just seems to be... It's it's like an exploitation movie. It's it exists mm. to exploit an existing audience by yeah. producing a film with as little effort as possible. They've just, you know, half, as as I say, half the script they've just lifted straight from the from the previous yeah. film. Uh, I'm genuinely with the, surprised with, with the same jokes. They've not even changed the yeah. gags. They've handed it to people. I'm genuinely you know, carry on. Sorry. Sorry, all, all, all I was going to say was I'm, I'm actually surprised that they didn't reuse the title Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because at least then it would have had some, some brand recognition. Unless everybody concerned was just embarrassed by it. Well, it wouldn't make sense, I don't think, to, to call women that because the idea is that it's, oh, that's women, um, so. it's women getting even with men. And okay, that's fine, but you have to do it in a way that isn't awful. You have to do it in a way that isn't lazy. Just copying exactly what men did before, but worse. That's not a good message to send, is it? I suppose that's true, yeah. Yes, I suppose it's a a bit like the the points in films, that that awkward phrase that films went through when they would talk about having a feminist character or a really strong female character, and actually what they just meant was that she swore and punched people. And yes, as you say, just copying what the men do isn't necessarily feminist in its own right. Yeah, you have to do more than just have cast a woman in a role written for a man. You know, that might have worked for Pennant Roberts on Doctor Who in the 70s, but you can't do that now. (laughs) You actually have to write proper characters. Yeah. The number five on the list is a film that you and I and Uncle Tom Cobbley and everyone else in the world saw... (laughs) It's Avengers Endgame. Yes. Um, I really liked it. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> it's it's genuinely it's one of those films I can be absolutely un uh, absolutely enthusiastic about. Um, it. I just remember going to see it at the cinema, and just it's one of those very very rare films where the process of actually going to the cinema felt like an event in its own right. I thought we'd got there early and there was a there was a queue of people waiting to go in and every single person in the queue judging by the conversations I overheard was talking about how long it was and they were all organizing how they were going to go to the toilet Blimey. it was it was just a succession of people go, literally you you had parents with kids going well, okay you sit on the end and then if you have to go you can just go without disturbing anybody and daddy it was just fascinating but yeah it was a real a, it was a proper, it was a proper cinema event, and I don't think you see very many of those these days. No, we haven't had anything like that since uh, the Force Awakens, mm. um, and that was thirty-two years 
in the in the in the anticipation. Um, yeah, Avengers Endgame is uh, yeah, the, the end product of a mere eleven years. But even then, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's something that we're going to see again for a very long time. Um, yeah, I, I I think it's the best film in the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The fact that they were able mm. to after. 21 previous films gather together all these threads and all these characters to such a satisfying conclusion to mm. one that one that what worked in story terms worked in emotional terms gave all the cast moments of their own was brilliantly acted even though everyone's working with green screen and I get the impression a lot mm. of the actors weren't together when they're in the same shot um, it's it has action it has comedy it has heart-rending drama it's got genuine s- scary material in it it it, cu- mm. it it runs the entire gamut of what cinema can do in the 21st century yeah, it's a it's a proper cap on on the pyramid and i think perhaps was it i can never remember who it was was it jack warner that supposedly judged films by the number of times he had to go to the toilet during them um, well, for all the talk at the start of the film of people organising their breaks and when they were going to have relief runs and things, I don't recall a single person going leaving the cinema to go to the low. It turned out that, that Jack Warner was right. This was a zero p film. <laughs> well, the the measure that I use is uh, how many times did I look at my watch, and mm. it was once after the end credits had already started. Wow. <laughs> um, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I think the whole thing is an amazing achievement. I think it's yeah. a, a mark of real snobbery that it wasn't Oscar nominated. It's the first time ever, I think, mm. that the the new highest grossing film of all time has been so widely overlooked. Even Avatar was nominated for Best Picture. And Avatar's rubbish. Mm. This is far greater an achievement in terms of storytelling, in terms of technical achievement, in terms of Kevin Feige's supervision of this gigantic decade-spanning project, bringing it to such Mm -hmm. a satisfying conclusion. Who would have thought that the directors of the pilot episode of um, Arrested Development would wind up (laughs) producing the greatest science fiction spectacular of the decade. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, obviously I wouldn't recommend it to people who hadn't seen any of the previous films. Uh, you, you have to watch at least a, oh, yeah, a yeah. half or maybe three quarters for it to make even a lick of sense. But it's the final episode of the series and it delivers in every way. It's, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's amazing that that could ever happen. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in contrast, number four on the list is a very small-scale film, The Two Popes. That rings... Yeah, that rings a bell. I mean, obviously, nobody's going to be surprised to hear me say I haven't seen it, but I definitely, at this, ti- list, at this point, the title at least registers. Um, it's based on a play by Anthony McCartan and adapted by him, directed by Fernando Morales, and it's the story. It's the heavily fictionalized story of meetings between the 
two most recent um, holders of the post of Bishop of Rome, um, Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, and Pope mm. Francis, Jose Babilia, played by Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. And it studies their relationship because no one has ever, uh, not for centuries, have, have been in this position where you've had one pope able to almost interview and groom his successor and then see them take over the position, whilst also being extremely different people. Um, Ratzinger is very traditional, enjoys classical music, uh, watches a, a German detective TV show about a police dog, whereas Bavilia is more modern, more progressive, you know, at least in terms of the Catholic Church, um, a huge football fan, and there's a scene where they first meet where Bobelia is whistling a, li- whistling a little tune to himself, and Ratzinger says, "Ah, oh, that's a that's a very that's a very pretty hymn. I'm 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 not aware of it. What's it called?" And Bobelia says, "Um, it's called Dancing Queen." Hmm. <laughs> because he has absolutely no idea of popular music, and it turns out later he doesn't even know yeah. who the Beatles are. But as the film progresses oh, and, and the characters and the characters talk, and we get a sense of what they're like as people, yeah. it's it's interesting to see the Pope portrayed very much as a as a real human being. These supposedly infallible mm. people, um, characterized as believable, relatable humans, in a way that's irreverent but not disrespectful. I don't think that it's yeah. it, it would raise the ire of any. Um, any any sort of mainstream Catholics on that, and it examines their yeah. backgrounds and how their lives, uh, particularly for Babilia, who's who's the more dominant within the story, how his background and his um, his experience in Argentina, particularly with uh, his experience in the in the military junta, and his guilt over um, his failure to act to protect people who are vulnerable. Um, how that has informed his current character and his policies as Pope. It does avoid going too much into Ratzinger's background because, as is well known, he was in the Hitler Youth, but kind of you had to be at the time. Um, Mm. Not that it's an excuse, but it's an explanation. Um, Yeah. But I I was really surprised by it. I I watched it because I'd heard that it had good performances and that it was likely to be nominated mm. for lots of awards. I'd hated previous films by Anthony McCartan. Bohemian Rhapsody. Which one's Darkest Hour. Uh, so, the, the Theory of Everything. Oh god, he did uh, I, I'm, I, I didn't realise it was the same guy that did Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. But then again, I also didn't realise that, that, that it was that was the same guy that had done Theory of Everything. <laughs> and all, all three of those films are demonstrably awfully badly written. But the difference, I think, mm. is that those are trying to tell true stories. The the two popes is not telling a true story. It's te- it's about these the 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 conflicting personalities of these two people, who are nevertheless yeah. broadly working towards same ends. A lot of it's, I mean, it's very very heavily fictionalized, but given that so much of it is just two people talking, it's it's very much a play on film, but it's filmed in such an interesting way as to make it feel much more vibrant and interesting. Um, It it gives you more dramatic license to depart from the historical record. So as a result, 
McCartan doesn't have to worry about fidelity to fact. It just has to be fidelity to yeah. tone and um, overall uh, attitude, I think, of the characters. Yeah. And as a result, I thought it was, was gonna make extremely a... good. I, I'm gonna, I was going to make a cheap shot. I'm going to make it anyway. I've seen Bohemian Rhapsody. He doesn't pay any attention to fidelity of fact. When it's real people, either. Well, no, that's true, but it really mattered that he that he had to tell the true yeah. story in, with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. But here, there is no real true story to tell, or if there is, mm. it's it's going to no. be fairly inconsequential. So he's able to yeah. expound on their supposed meetings and conversations about about life, about culture, and about the, the future direction of the church. Yeah. in a way that is true to the way the characters would behave, even if it's not necessarily what actually happened. Um, yeah. So he may have found his niche in terms of writing not true stories, but believable stories about real people. But I was I was surprised by it, and I thought it was very, very good indeed. Now, we get to the last film that you've seen uh, in the second worst film of the year. It is, of course... Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Second worst film, blimey! That's uh, what makes you call it that. Uh, because there's one film I saw that was even worse. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, if you're going to get all literal on me, yes, no, that's fair enough. Um, um, I didn't. I didn't think it was that bad. I thought that it was. There's. There's a word that's been developed in Doctor Who fan circles many years ago, um, which is fan wank, which means throwing together all kinds of disparate elements from the um, the the mythology of the of the uh, fictional universe in a way that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but fans enjoy because they like seeing all these things together all at the same time. Mm. And that's what Rise of Skywalker is like. You've got all these things thrown together, regardless of how incoherent it is. So you have to bring back the Emperor, because people like the Emperor. You have to bring back Lando Calrissian, because people like him, even though you don't really give him anything to do. Mm. You have to pander so heavily to the fans in refuting the changes that The Last Jedi made to the saga um, Mm. of making... Raise parents nobodies because that opened up the Star Wars universe so much more. But no, this film says, oh no, actually, she's Palpatine's granddaughter because everything. Oh, has that's to be, right. Because oh, everything yes, yeah. has to come from you know these these yeah. this one family. Um, there's there's six planets and three families. Yeah, um, everything has to be shrunk down. Um, Rosemary Tran, who had such a, a substantial role in the Last Jedi, gets cut down to almost nothing, and instead we get two new characters thrown in. Uh, both of them from J.J. Abrams' previous TV shows. Uh, the actors, rather. Um, uh, Dominic Monaghan yeah. and uh, Carrie Russell. Um, at the, uh, having had various Death Stars in previous movies, now at the end we get every Star Destroyer is outfitted with its own Death Star because Death Stars are, are the thing that people like and that's something that people recognise. Um, there is a lack of creativity to this that is absolutely staggering. This is supposed to be the final chapter in a trilogy of trilogies. A decade-spanning saga of turmoil that has ripped the galaxy asunder. 
and yet there is a mm. total allergy to bringing in anything real or weighty or mm. having things in it that matter. At one point early in the film, it's suggested that Chewbacca has been killed, and that's immediately walked back. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. C three PO is going to have his memory wiped. Um, but uh, no, that turns into a joke, and he gets his memory back at the end. You know, not even at the end of the movie. That. Um, that. It's, it's suggested that would... Lando, Lando Calrissian has a daughter, which is sort of vaguely hinted to, rather than in any way confirmed, because there's mm. just, there's no commitment to anything. There's no commitment to doing anything oh, that people might that might startle anyone. Just as, or, or we can't possibly mm. say that um, um, any anyone with a force isn't special. You know, you know the idea of anyone being able to develop the force and anyone being able to be a Jedi. No, no, no. It has to, you have to be born special. In the same way, they won't commit to anything that might frighten people or frighten the fans away. Like dramatic twists in a film which is the last in the series and where you can get away with that kind of thing. Mm. It's cowardly. No, it's funny. Yeah, no, I've got to be honest and say that I think I might have been thinking of The Last Jedi, uh, which I actually really liked. Um, yeah, I like The Last I didn't certainly. really like it, but it was pretty good. It was a lot better than this. Yeah, I... I certainly, you've reminded me that the sequence with C-3PO was a real misstep um, because I remember sitting there watching that sequence as it was, was taking place and there is a certain appropriateness to the fact that there is you know, the annoying character who has been the butt of jokes through nine films now um, and suddenly they get their moment to shine and they get their moment to stand up and be the hero and to, as you say, to sacrifice their life in order to uh, let people do whatever it is they're trying to do. They're trying to find a map to get somewhere or something, they're, aren't they? They're trying to find a map to get to one place where they can find another map to get to somewhere else where they can find another map to get to somewhere else. Because the plot, it. it's, it's like the keys of Mariners. It's the most lazy yeah. A to B to C plotting. And it's so ridiculous because yeah. there's, there's a bit on a knife that matches the shape of a bit of wreckage of the Death Star oh. from Return of the Jedi. So how now, old's the now knife, I'm then? remembering why. I've just remembered. I think I thought this film was right. Yeah, but no, the the C three PO bit. The point when I realised they were going to walk that back. Yeah, that was a terrible creative decision. It's. But it's, I suppose did the. Is this the film where they get to the end and they give Chewbacca a medal? Yes. Ah. Uh, Oh, yeah, sorry, I've just remembered this film's wrong. And yet, and yet it only came out second. Yeah, well, the worst is yet to come. Um, this is, I mean, pretty much killed any interest I have in Star Wars. If they, if they are mm. so sloppy and so unconcerned with quality that they will fart out this rubbish and treat it as though it's you know, the magnificent conclusion to a saga... I mean, I'll probably watch The Mandalorian eventually. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hugely keen on getting Disney Plus because there's there's not there's no. no there's no content on there that I'm screaming for. I'll watch The Mandalorian. Maybe Disney I'll has a DVD. Yeah, but, but Disney has enough money. Yeah, they do. Um, but I've no real interest on but, seeing any uh, further Star Wars films because they really don't know what they're doing. The sequel trilogy has been a real mess of lack of organisation mm. and lack of planning. 
And but I when think... you compare it to what we were saying five minutes ago about Avengers Endgame, yeah, there's there's a very very clear roadmap of how you do these things, and the Star Wars films didn't do it. I think that the most damning thing you can say is that they don't even have the integrity of vision of George Lucas's prequels, because mm. those those I are. Those three films are the work of George Lucas, and they are the way he yeah. wanted them. All rubbish yeah. though they are, and I went back and checked, all three films are in my bottom five of whichever years they are. They're not good films, but they are, cons- they are yeah. internally consistent. They feel like three parts of a story, and Lucas did what he wants yeah. to do, and he did them. These are focus group to hell. They are purely crowd-pleasing, there is no fidelity mm. to good storytelling, to th- even the slightest thought going into anything. They are the laziest solutions to the problems yeah. in every case, regardless of how coherent they are. And even the scenes with, with Carrie Fisher are so badly shoehorned in, it, they should have just killed her off between films. That would have, that would have been more dignified, yeah. I think, than using off-cuts of bits of scenes and trying to write dialogue around what was left over. Yes. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. It's fun. I mean, obviously, you've got the pattern of Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Sith, Rise of Skywalker. It's like George Lucas said, it's poetry, it rhymes. The three, wor- the three last films in the trilogy are the three worst. Yeah, they've never been able to come up with a good conclusion. And as as other people have pointed out, Star Wars is ultimately quite a limited concept. Mm. Um, I don't know what they can do next. I know that there are plans for a big multimedia storyline called The High Republic um, set centuries further back in the past. And that sounded like a a reasonably interesting idea because it starts with a a major disaster where a, a a giant asteroid or something is heading towards the galaxy and the, the Jedi work together to destroy it, but they just turn it into a load of little asteroids. So there's this impending catastrophe that's going to impact inhabited worlds across the galaxy. And I think, well, that as a it's... starting point for a story, that's not terrible. Yeah. But uh, m- multimedia stories require a lot of time and effort and money. So no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not bothering the with the Doctor Who what they're doing, so why should I bother with Star Wars? Which Doctor Who one? Sorry. Oh, they're doing a Doctor Who multimedia story called Time Lord Victorious. Ah, okay. Which they're doing in co- books it, and comic on. strips and audio plays, and I don't care. I don't and care. And not on TV, it doesn't count. Oh, not on TV, no. <laughs> no. But, uh, no, I mean, the... The problem you've got with Star Wars in some ways is... is any time you veer away from the very, very narrow thing of here's Tatooine and here's Jabba the Hutt and here's um, whatever the weird rat face salacious crumb, that's what I was trying to think of. Um, it's just generic. Because, because, of course, it came out of that stew of ideas that included Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and things. It's just generic science fiction stuff. And yeah, you know, the, the story about the asteroid is fine, but how is that different from setting it in, you know, 
Isaac Asimov's foundation universe when there's an empire at the peak of its abilities? Or how is it different from the Federation? And that's, I don't know, that's, that's, that's the problem you've got to solve, is what's, what's the Star Wars version of this story? And I don't know. Well, maybe they'll think of something. I mean, from what I've heard, a lot of the Star Wars spin-off material is dramatically quite superior to the stuff that's been pooed out onto the screen. Um, the Mandalorian is a nice, is a good series, but I suppose it's the fact that yes, it's it's the fact that it's a character in Boba Fett armor walking around that kind of makes it work in an odd sort of way. Yeah. Don't know. Well, the number three on the good list of the year is mm. something rather interesting. The Lighthouse. Okay. Uh, second appearance in the top ten by Willem Dafoe. Mm. Uh, co-starring with Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers who at the dawn of the 20th century head off to a remote island for their four-week shift but as time goes on and the weather closes in, things start to get more and more intense and insane. Uh, it's directed by Robert Eggers, co-written with his brother Max, um, and it's deliberately made in a very period style. Uh, it's in black and white, shot on film, in oh. a very tight screen ratio. It's nearly square. It's tighter than four oh, by right. three, so it's ne- it, is, it is very claustrophobic. Yeah, And it's made as though it's a film out of the the dawn of sound. There's scenes early yeah. on that, that look like they're lifted straight out of a silent picture of you know, ships emerging from fog at sea. And the film is about the relationship between these two men as their little uh, irritants and foibles start to uh, wear on each other. Particularly Defoe's mm. character refusing to allow his colleague into the lamp room so whatever there's some, there's something that he's keeping secret about the lamp room right um whilst Patterson's character too is having bizarre visions and strange fantasies um it's it's a very intense film but it's it, it's it's a sign of the the new wave of horror movies that are crossing over it into more art house this has mm. themes of isolation and madness it has allusions to various ancient myths um it's has weird sexual imagery um and uh, homoerotic elements to it um but at the same time it's got um robert pattinson complaining about willem dafoe's cooking and Defoe in turn calling down Poseidon to cast a curse on him uh, <laughs> for his presumption to criticise his lobster. Um, it sounds great. I, 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 I'm going to have to track it down now. It's really good. It was Oscar nominated for its photography, yeah. which for a horror movie is an achievement. Yeah, that's an achievement. Um, hmm. It has fantastic performances. It has this beautiful, rich dialogue you know, lifted straight out of Melville. Um, and it starts towards the end to even twist around the idea of what we're watching. Um, one of the characters previously worked as a logger in Canada, 
and it suggested that maybe maybe none of this is real. Maybe the island isn't real. Maybe he's you know lying oh, in the really? forest in Canada, dying of exposure, hallucinating yeah. this whole thing. Hmm. Um, how much of what he remembers really happened? How long have they actually been there? How long have they been on this hmm. island? So it's alluding to myths of uh, Prometheus and Proteus and Poseidon and and again sex with mermaids and all kinds all kinds of strangeness. It's it's really hmm. really great. It's a fantastically constructed film. All the, the the buildings and the lighthouse were all built for the film, and it all looks real and solid and and authentic. Yeah. Um, Pattinson and Defoe are both fantastic, um, and I, I love the the richness of it and the mood of it and the the increasing craziness of it. it I, and I wasn't even that keen on Egger's previous film, The Witch. Which is quite similar in tone um, and style, although it wasn't black and white. Um, But I I didn't really, I couldn't really get to grips with it. But with this, I think, yeah, Yeah. Eggers is a a very unusual uh, filmmaker, Um, and the the success of the film and the claim the film's had, I think, you know, opens the door to his next film being even more bizarre and extreme. And I'm looking forward to it. Number two on my list is another Oscar-nominated film, Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yes. Written and directed by Taika Waititi, mm. um, and about a young member of the Hitler Youth during World War II, who, for whom Hitler is also his imaginary best friend. <laughs> and um, I liked it very much. Yeah. It's, it's similar in tone to uh, Waititi's other films of mixing um, everyday comic material in an odd setting. Um, so previously he, he directed What We Do in the Shadows, where you have vampires squabbling over yeah. who's doing the cleaning. And here we have me- members of the Gestapo coming into his bedroom to see the picture of Hitler going, hey, that's a real good boy's bedroom. Hmm. Um, the film is a, a sat- meant to be a, a fairly straightforward satire yeah. on... Um, fascism and hatred but the the way it's presented I find make it more unusual and a bit more special the way that uh, bigotry is presented as something childish that we are supposed to grow out of that all the adult characters who are still devoted to Hitler are all written as being childish and immature Mm. whereas young Jojo as he uh, discovers that his mother is sheltering a Jew within his own house, he develops as a person and becomes more emotionally mature and, as a result, leaves behind um, his uh, enjoyment of taking part in the, uh, the Hitler Youth programme. Because, you know, as, as the, the young Jewish girl says, you know, it's... You know, you want to be popular. You want to be in the, the fun club where you all go camping and you do stuff in the woods. Yeah, that's normal. Um, but you know, sometimes you have to grow up. So you have, you know, you have um, uh, Stephen Merchant as a Gestapo officer who is overly cheery. You have uh, Sam Rockwell as the head of the uh, Hitler Youth Troop, who's been successively demoted because he keeps getting into trouble for his various antics, and it's also suggested that he's having an affair with his um, second-in-command. Oh, you mean... I, I, um, I'm assuming... Scarlett, Johan- 
I'm assuming the second in command isn't female. No. Ooh, yeah. Um, but that relationship is actually portrayed as being rather sweet and romantic. Yeah. Um, you have uh, Scarlett Johansson as Jojo's mother, um, who continually questions him over his uh, beliefs, but does it from a position of caring from him and yeah. trying to protect him from the evil of the world. And you even have Rebel Wilson in a supporting role, and she's not terrible. Wow. I mean, maybe that's um, an achievement a, in itself. But yeah. Yeah, with a you know, with a strong script and a strong director, mm. um, there's a there's a very fine balance of of comedy and and much darker, more dramatic material. The, the film takes a very dark turn later on, in a way that could have derailed the whole mm. story, but still manages to make it work. And it it shows off what a skilled director Waititi is, mm. that he's able to seed elements without seeming to put too much emphasis on it that then pay off very well towards the end of the film um, where jokes become serious and uh, the source of more dramatic character material at the end of the story um, I liked it very very much mm. um, I was pleased that it was as popular as it was I th- yeah, it does it does soft pedal some things um, but it's meant to be I think more suitable for a younger audience. Um, So the idea of portraying bigotry and fascism as being the result of a childish mind, whereas the more adult, mature people are more uh, more open and more thoughtful, uh, I think is a message worth telling to the youth. Yes. Now, the worst film of the year. When I first saw the trailer about 15 months ago or so, I was so appalled by what I saw that I promised there and then that if I saw a worse film this year, last year rather, during my review of the year, this recording, I would eat cat food. (laughs) The cat's dinner is safe, I'm taking it. Very much so. Um... It is a film that is a colossal waste of talent, an active insult to other artists, and a baffling boil on the face of cinema. It is Danny Boyle's Yesterday. Oh, right. (laughs) Okay, I'm not sure what, what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. No, I've heard a lot of people be quite scathing about Yesterday. And I can't say I'm particularly surprised. It seems like a very unusual project for him to get himself involved in, to be honest. It's the story of a struggling singer-songwriter who gets involved in a car accident uh, just as there is a global blackout. And when he wakes up, he discovers that he's the only person in the world who is able to remember the music of the Beatles. So obviously he uses this to his advantage. Hmm immediately starts performing it in public, becomes a huge global star immediately because the Beatles' music is magic, yes. and uh, romances his uh, longtime friend and manager uh, in a storyline that is pushed to the fore rather than exploring or in any way explaining the desperately unoriginal central concept. 
Um, Danny Boyle is a very, very talented filmmaker who has made many great films. Uh, Slumdog Millionaire is a previous Best Film of the Year winner for me. Um, and I've covered The Beach in the podcast, and I think that's a, a greatly underappreciated film. Mm. I had absolutely no idea why he would choose to make this film. Um, I can understand the appeal appar- of, appar- of the premise, but certainly the, the, on the occasions when I've heard people sort of... Uh, when I've heard people rubbishing the film, it's partly because, as you say, the idea of that 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 he immediately achieved global success because it's the Beatles and everybody. This is the film, isn't it? That there was an article floating around recently talking about how the original writer of the uh, the original writer of the treatment was was kind of pushed to one side by Richard Curtis. Am I right? Yes, he he pretty much had to sue to get any acknowledgement yeah. that his original script that he'd worked on with Mackenzie Crook was bought up by Curtis. Curtis completely rewrote it from scratch mm. so that it didn't make any sense anymore. Am I right in and thinking as well... Then try, and then tried claiming full credit for it. Well, uh, am I right in thinking as well that the original premise was that nobody remembers the Beatles and he starts singing his songs and he doesn't get anywhere because... He's not the Beatles. Yeah, it was along those lines. It's yeah. like he, he, he get he books gigs in slightly better pubs. Yeah. So his the scale of his success was greater, but he doesn't become a global yeah. superstar overnight, losing songwriting contests to Ed Sheeran. <laughs> Although, frankly, that's not hard. Well, yeah. Um. It. Everything about this film baffles mm. me. I don't know why Danny Boyle would choose to make this over a James Bond film where he had apparently no creative control mm. and yet apparently he had much more control over this and yet still produced this. Um, I don't know why Richard Curtis decided to rewrite what was presumably a perfectly serviceable mm. script in order to make it significantly worse to... Um, water down the central concept to make it a a feeble-minded romantic drama between two people with very little chemistry. Um, As I say, Ed Sheeran has a supporting role um, Mm. and uh, he even gets a song over the end credits, an an original song of his own, rather than a Beatles song. Well, no, why would you do Um, that? That would make no sense, yes. (laughs) Uh, the, 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 the central, I mean, the thing that everyone goes back to is the central concept makes absolutely no yeah. sense. You can't pull the Beatles out of history, and also within the the story, um, uh, both Harry Potter and Coca Cola don't exist right. in, in this new world, and yet every and yet everything else about the world is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, that's that's not how history works. No. You can't pull things out and expect there to be no consequences. In the same way that you can't suddenly drop the music of the Beatles into the the world that it is now and expect it to be this global overnight sensation. Yeah. The Beatles' music grew out of existing musical trends. It grew out of rock and roll. Yeah. It grew out of rhythm and blues and jazz and black music. There was a n- notable and easily documentable progression and evolution of musical genres and musical types that resulted 
in the Beatles. And even within their own catalogue, you see the progression from their early um, radio-friendly singles, like Love Me Do and yeah. Wanna Hold Your Hand, to more experimental material and much stranger, less commercial material later on, like Revolution 9, or stuff on the White Album and Abbey Road. The film ignores this. No, it's one big lump of music yeah. that's magic. And anyone who hears it immediately thinks it's genius, regardless of context. That's not how music works, and that's not how storytelling works. Uh, Richard Curtis has written good things. Yeah, his, his episode of Doctor Who, I think, is a yeah. brilliant piece of work. Yeah. His work on Blackadder is generally of a very high standard. Danny Boyle has made great films. I don't know why they think this is remotely acceptable because this is one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> but as you say... It's they, actively insulting. But they, they have creative control, which appears to be one of these things that people fight for at times, regardless of whether regardless of whether it's what's actually needed. Because, you know, obviously, Stan Street, people have made brilliant films and brilliant Bond films with next to no creative control, because when you work properly with the producers, they guide you to shape a film that manages to be a James Bond film, but is still a good film in its own right. But I don't know. I don't know if there's an element of ego. Do you think in some way Richard Curtis was kind of almost channeling... I definitely think there's an element of ego there. He's channeling I mean, himself? For that by, thing? Buying up someone else's screenplay and then plastering your name on it. Yeah. And then forcing the original writer to almost have to go to court to get any acknowledgement. But that thing that as well. Their work. But that idea as well that uh, that he's doing what the character in the film. You know, he's taking somebody else's idea and he's making it into gold. I wonder whether he kind of saw himself reflected in the character or something. It just. And 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 yet the the main character is is a fraud. Yeah. And. He he has almost no problem with being a fraud mm. for almost the entire film until at the end he has a crisis of conscience when he goes out to meet John Lennon, uh. who's lived his whole life in obscurity and is played by um, Robert Carlyle under some very unconvincing prosthetics. Yes. And And Lennon is treated as though he's this holy guru um, rather than a wife-beater. And it's odd um, as well. I'd be interested to f to know the process that led to the, led them to choose Lennon. Except, of course, that there's there's a case because, he, because because he's the because he's the one who's dead. But he's all yes, but but because he's not only dead because Paul Harrison obviously is, is dead as well. But you know, but it's the he's got credibility. You know, he's 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 now history has rewritten him as the artistic one of the Beatles and all that sort of thing. So. If you want somebody to give your central character a big thumbs up, yeah, of course you go to... What are they going to do? Go to Ringo. Um, it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's odd, I mean, if they it? want... I mean, I mean, Lennon didn't live long enough to write the Frog Song. No, exactly. Which is the problem. And if anything, I mean, George Harrison's legacy within mm. the Beatles is not as great as it should have been because the others were holding him back. But yeah. he was very much uncompromised in his solo work and yeah. his solo work is fantastic he I think is the artistic soul of the Beatles more than any of the others well there's something as well for the but, argument that with him going on to create handmade films and allowing other people 
but you know, be, being the instigator that allowed other people to create great works as well, because of course he's indirectly responsible for the uh, for the life of Briar um, and the various the various good handmade films that came out as well. Yeah, you could argue he's got a greater artistic legacy. Yeah. So we have a film made by plagiarists. Uh, Ed Sheeran also has has been sued for um, plagiarism and has had to for, has been forced to add other people's names to his songs. Mm. Um, and it's about a plagiarist who is then portrayed as being a hero when he realizes that plagiarism is bad. Mm. There was even a subplot in the film. Um, uh, in which his character has an affair with a groupie played by Anna de Armas, but that was cut in order to make him more likable. Um, he is already a fraud. Yeah, he's not likable. So I don't know yeah. what metric they were using to measure this by. It's it's a really awful film. Yeah. It doesn't seem to understand basics of human behaviour, or music, or art. It buys into the the myth of the Beatles completely and unquestioningly, and I would love to know what version it was Mackenzie Crook was planning on doing, mm. because at the moment, uh, Boyle and Curtis could wish they had a legacy as unfettered as Crook's work as a writer and director on Detectorists and Wurzel Gummidge, yeah. because both of those are extraordinary works of vision, written, produced and directed by and starring a very talented man and the track record is is obvious as to which should be which version of this story is going to be the superior Yeah. so the best film of the year um, amazingly it does actually share a cast member with uh, Yesterday <laughs> But it it could not be more different. It has it is a film with great respect and enthusiasm for genre, understanding uh, construction, how stories work, and how to use genre to tell greater stories. In particular, illuminating ideas of privilege and um, class. And that film is Knives Out. Oh yes, yeah. The setup is classic murder mystery material. Um, the very wealthy author of a string of successful murder mysteries is found dead in his home the night after his 85th birthday. The various members of his family are all suspected of the crime, and the police have called in, or rather, um, a detective has appeared on the scene, a, the legendary private investigator Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig and a fruity accent, hmm. to assist the police in finding out the mystery of what happened. However, very quickly, the focus of the story starts shifting onto other characters. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, no, it's, but... it's a film I haven't seen, and it's, it's, it's actually a film I feel bad about not having seen. <laughs> you can rent it digitally tonight. I think I may well do that, um, yes. The, it shifts onto other characters that illuminates how the story we're seeing is not necessarily truth. Mm. Um, everything is about additional facts, 
about interpretations of events, of the way uh, what happened the night of the murder is filtered through other people's perceptions and how those perceptions have been manipulated in order to impose a story. So it becomes very uh, um, active in its meta-narrative mm. in deliberately manipulating the story that other characters are presenting to themselves in terms of what happened and to how the mystery itself unravels. As well as all of that, it's about uh, exploitation and privilege. This wealthy family and their um, the nurse who cared for the patriarch in his later years and the way that they treat her as um, a member of the family, but only when it's convenient yeah. for them, only when, um, only when it's uh, prudent for them to have her all, you know, around as an appendage. They, they ask her along to events, and then they can't even remember which country she's from. Hmm. And as the focus moves around, the way that this story about privilege and entitlement manipulates the story and manipulates the stories the characters are telling I think is is brilliant um, it's my choice for best original screenplay of the year um, I think Ryan Johnson's writing and directing are both extraordinary he has such a perfect handle on how to tell this kind of murder mm. mystery um, the cast is uniformly fantastic Daniel Craig as the detective is more energised and more alive than I've seen him on screen in years. Remember how he was almost sleepwalking through a lot of Spectre? Yes. Oh, um, yes. In, in, in Knives Out, he is an absolute live wire. Hmm. And he is having the time of his life. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis as the eldest daughter is excellent. Christopher Plummer as the murder victim who then appears throughout the film in flashbacks. Um, is superb, a wonderfully genial, charming performance from Christopher Plummer, who I'm I'm so used to seeing as sort of menacing older figures. I recently watched All the Money in the World, where he plays uh, John Paul Getty, hmm. who is an absolute ogre. And in this film, he's almost the flip side of that. He's the the wealthy patriarch to the rich family, but he's a lovely old you know twinkly old buffer, yeah. and an absolute delight. Um, and 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 a lot of actors are, are cast against type. So you have again Plummer as a you know as genial old fellow, um, Anna de Armas, who is this has been cast in many films for her beauty and her physical attraction. In this is playing a nurse, so she's wearing like cardigans and comfy shoes for most of the movie. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is uh, playing a total bitch, and her husband, who's played by Don Johnson, is the beaten down, you know, beta male. Uh, Michael Shannon has always played very intense, frightening characters. He plays a total doormat. Mm. Um, so everyone gets to stretch, everyone gets to yeah. um, e explore different characters. And there's even room for some fantastic improvised dialogue. Um, out of the, I mean, the main one, of course, is, is Chris Evans, Captain America himself, playing a total shit. And reveling in it, everyone's everyone's released from the shackles of their usual personas, and there's so much energy flying around the screen. It's it crackles. Mm. It's an absolute delight to watch, and it's an absolute delight to to try and engage with and unravel it as you're watching it. 
as layers are added and layers are peeled away, it's a, it's an absolutely brilliant piece of work. Mm. Brilliantly made, brilliantly directed, brilliantly acted, totally contemporary in its uh, subtext and yet a timeless murder mystery. Mm. I absolutely loved it. Yes, well, that's my Saturday evening viewing sorted then. And I'm impressed that I managed to go through the whole of that without any spoilers. <laughs> yes, and I, I appreciate it as well. Um, so, what hopes do you have for this year in terms of uh, particular films? Well, I'm, st- I'm I'm struggling now to think of films that I know are coming out this year. I mean, obviously, we've got No Time to Die, which has been pushed back. I assume Tenet has been pushed back again, despite the wishes of Christopher Nolan. Um, the trouble is, everything everything currently is starting back. Peter Jackson's meant to be working on a re-edit of... Uh, not Let It Be. What on earth was the last... It is Let It Be, it yes, is let it but be, it's, yeah. it's, going by, it's going by its original title of Get Back. That's it, yes. I mean, that, that genuinely, of uh, all of them, that, that, that was the one that kind of intrigued me the most because it's meant to... My understanding is it's a complete reworking from the ground up of the original footage. Yes, and it was going to be accompanied by a re-release of the original film, okay. the, the Michael Lindsay Hogg documentary. So mm. it's going to be almost like a, a diptych of, of both films. Yeah. That's been put back to next year. Yeah, that's a shame. At the moment, it's 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 possible that No Time to Die will be put back to next year yeah. because Universal does not have a major film coming out. Oh, no, they do. They do have um, Fast and Furious Nine. Or maybe they'll yeah maybe they'll settle the Fast and Furious yeah, Nine next possibly. year because um, it's it's likely that Jurassic World Dominion won't be finished for next summer. Oh no! Um, at the moment, Tenet is due for release in the, in mid August, although that might well have changed by the time this episode's released. Yeah. Um, there are a number of other films I'm looking forward to. Bill and Ted Face the Music. Of course, yeah, that's that's um, due this year, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wonder Woman 1984. I really enjoyed the first Wonder mm. Woman much more than I expected. Um, Wes Anderson has a new film coming up, The French Dispatch. Um, even uh, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America uh, might well be a breath of fresh air. The, the, the original film, yeah. I remember being quite entertaining when I saw it nearly 30 years ago. Um, and there might be other things added to the schedule or yeah. um, things cropping up on the. Uh, on the streaming services that we weren't even aware of. Um, at the moment, it's a bit of a uh, lucky dip, yes. and uh, we don't know if there are actually any prizes in the barrel. <laughs> so hopefully I'll um, reconvene with you at some point next year when we'll scrape around and try and find enough things to talk about. Yes, yeah. Um, but until then, uh, very happy viewing to you and to all you listeners at home. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with over 80 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, it's all in the mind, you know. Listening to Cinema Limbo, 
hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.